0: Thank <laughs> you. Welcome back to The Leadership Project. This is your host, Charles Smith. And on today's episode, I'm sitting down with Matt Carter, founder and pastor of preaching at the Austin Stone Community Church, to discuss John Maxwell's 21 irrefutable laws of leadership. And specifically, we're going to be talking about his famous law number one, which is the law of the lid. And the law of the lid essentially says this, it it suggests that the things we lead, whether it's our family or our team or organizations or churches, they will never surpass our ability to lead them. In other words, if you're a five as a leader, your organization will never be an eight. But on today's podcast, Matt takes issue with this concept man this was a really exciting and profitable conversation it was actually really fun to talk to matt about how he caught that bird that became uh, a video that's shown around the world and just to hear a story about writing a couple books and what's happening at the austin stone so i have no doubt this is going to be an enjoyable conversation for you this is the leadership project this is your host charles smith here's matt carter Matt, welcome to the Leadership Project, man. How you doing? Good, Charles. How are you doing, man? Good to be here. You, you know, you and I were just talking about before we hit record that before I knew you, I knew you as a gift. Uh, I knew you as something I could send to friends on a phone. And you, you know what I'm talking about, don't you?
1: <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> man, I am. Um, yeah, it's uh, um, used to on the iPhone, you could type in like a boss and uh, I
0: would, <laughs> true story, and I would come up catching a, that stupid bird. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if people don't know this story, so you're hunting, I guess, promoting a book you did with Colt McCoy, but you guys are pheasant hunting somewhere, and somebody alerts you that a bird's flying right at you, and somehow we catch this on video that you literally catch the bird calmly in your hand that's flying full speed right at your face like it's no big deal, and it's become viral all over the world, right?
1: Man, it's hilarious. It's actually a quail. Yeah, we were filming um, a, a Bible study video series uh, we were doing for a book I wrote for Lifeway called The Real Wind with Colt McCoy. And we wanted to do a hunting and fishing video series Bible study thing for men. And, and we were quail hunting. And yeah, man, we were done. They were just catching B-roll. I was walking back to the trucks. Trucks were about 50 yards away. And <laughs> and um, stupid birds flew right out I me. Mean, my cousin is behind me. And he, a- he actually said, catch it. You can't hear it. And I caught it, and uh, and you know the biggest question people ask is like why did you why were you so calm why did you throw your hand in the air you know and and uh, it's a pretty cool story when when I was uh, when I was a little kid my uncle and I were dove hunting and he shot this dove and it kind of flew down right at us and my uncle caught it in his dove vest in the pocket of his dove vest and it was like an <laughs> eight year old kid I thought that's the coolest thing I'm never topping that in my whole life <laughs> my uncle is actually to the left of the camera hunting with me you can't see it. Wow. And so the first thing that went through my mind when I caught that bird was, man, I just topped the old man. And so, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you. Uh, before we started, I was laughing about the fact that if you Google and you can do this if you're listening, uh, you can you can Google tonight, man catching bird or hunter catching bird. I mean, there's like thousands upon thousands of uh, pictures and articles, some of them from across the globe. And you you were sharing, you don't don't have to share the story now, but just as you've traveled around the world, people know you as the guy that caught the bird and uh, not one of the founding pastors or the founding pastor of the Austin Stone. But, man, I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. I want to talk about, in just a minute, an article that you wrote over at For the Church called Refuting the Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And you, you look at one of Maxwell's first But before we do that, man, I'm recording this podcast from the Spurgeon Library, and uh, I've actually hung out with you in this library before because you and Aaron Ivey uh, were coming up doing research for a book that you guys co-authored. Man, just want to hear what the (laughs) Lord did through that book, what you learned about yourself, what you learned about Spurgeon, what you learned about leadership, writing a book on Charles Spurgeon.
1: Yeah, so, man, years ago, I, I read a book. Called Killer Angels by a guy named Michael Cherr, and it uh, I think it was written in the '80s. And um, I think he won the the Pulitzer Prize uh, for literature for that book. And what was interesting about that book, it was about the the Battle of Gettysburg, mm-hmm. but it was written from the perspective of the characters that lived it. And so instead of writing about the Battle of Gettysburg, it was a novel where um, you know General Grant was the char- one of the characters, and Robert E. Lee was one of the characters, and then <clears> some of the the real soldiers that were on the ground fighting the battle were the actual characters. And, and I just, it brought to life, I'm a kind of a history buff and it brought to life that story mm-hmm. in a way that I'd never really seen before thought about. <clears throat> and I remember thinking, man, how cool would it be, you know, how cool would it be if, if, if we were to write a novel about some of the heroes that we have as pastors and Christians. And, and I immediately thought about Charles Spurgeon, because he's such a, Gosh man, he's such a hero. You think Jesus, you think the Apostle Paul, and and then you think Spurgeon, you know? Yeah. And um and and as we were talking about, you know, earlier, we've almost lionized this guy. He's he's almost the fourth person of the of the of the of the Trinity, you know, if you will. And and we thought, man, what if we got in this guy's life, we got in his story, we got in his head, and we sort of wrote a book or a novel of historical fiction based on truth and reality from his perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and sure enough, man, I I was thinking I didn't want to write it by myself because I knew there'd be multiple characters, and I didn't want to write all the characters myself. So I thought about Aaron Ivey. Aaron Ivey, if you don't know him, is a our worship leader at the Austin Stone, the head worship leader, and just an unbelievable worship leader, an un- unbelievable guy. And but a lot of people don't know he's just he's a great writer. He's excellent. Mm-hmm. And so I asked him to do it, and we went through the process of beginning researching uh, the book. And the first place we went was to Midwestern. You know yep. y'all had just gotten the library it wasn't even put in in the in the big room that it was now it was back in it was in yep. a and uh, That's right and uh Dr. Allen was gracious enough to give us access to it and and we were like kids in a candy store man, just walking through there and 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 reading all his stuff and 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 we sat down with with one of you guys um, that was uh was involved with the Spurgeon library at the time and 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 interviewed him he was one of the <clears throat> Kind of the lead scholars in the country, for Spurgeon, and and he we were just asking him like, man, what would be a what would be a topic? Like, what would be a part of of Spurgeon's life that should we write on? You know, should we write on the downgrade controversy? Should we write it? You know, about his <clears throat> his childhood, and he was talking, and and man, he he just kind of briefly, as a as an aside, said, you know what? There was a relationship that Spurgeon had with a. <clears throat> Uh, a former slave from America that came to, mm. to Spurgeon's college and, and then ended up being a missionary to Africa. And when oh. he said that Aaron and I kind of looked at each other I'm like, what, that sounds cool. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and so we, we looked it up and sure enough, man, there's this guy named Thomas Johnson who, um, this is just one of the stories that had never been really talked about from Spurgeon's life. This guy named Thomas Johnson, mm. um, was a, a slave that was born in, uh, into slavery in Richmond, Virginia, at a plantation there, <clears throat> and and just really long story short, it's what the book is all about. This guy gets saved on the plantation. Just an amazing, incredible story of this guy's salvation, and um, just had a passion to, if he ever got off the plantation, to to go to Africa and be a missionary mm. and to tell you know his people about Jesus. But he was uneducated, <clears throat> and he was in slavery. Mm. Well, he he actually was freed. At the Emancipation Proclamation, um, it's a, that's a cool part of the story. It actually happened. He was in the streets of Richmond when the Union Army came, came riding up and liberated Richmond. And anyway, he he gets he's he's freed, and but then he's like, all right, what do I do now with my life? And yeah, he he became friends with a guy that that um, that actually knew Charles Spurgeon. They got connected. He ends up going to England. Spurgeon brings him in and educates him, and these two guys become friends. And become close, and, and so here's Charles Spurgeon, maybe the most famous uh, pastor in the world at the time, who befriends this former slave, and their friendship is 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 amazing. It's a picture of what I think it's supposed to look like, and mm. and Spurgeon, um, you know, um, sends this guy to Africa as a missionary, and we we just tell that story, and and um, man, the process of it was unbelievable. We uh, we spent about a year and a half just researching. We we read everything we could get our hands on um, mm. about Charles Spurgeon. The way that we wrote it is that Aaron sort of took Spurgeon and I took Thomas Johnson. Mm. And uh, Aaron even flew to England and and spent a, a couple of weeks in London and just went everywhere Spurgeon ever went. Just got his head around it and mm. and um, and and then we, we we began writing and wrote from their perspective. Um, you know, and, and, an interesting thing is, I don't know if you've noticed, man, but I'm a, I'm a white guy. And, uh, and, and so I'm writing from the perspective of, of an African-American former slave yeah. from the 1850s. And so, man, I called a lot of my pastor buddies that are, that are, that are black and just said, man, I need your help. I want to get this guy's voice right. I don't want to demean him because he was brilliant. And I said, and so I, I, I leaned on a lot of guys through that process and, mm-hmm. And when we were done, every one of them was really honored by it and thought we handled it well. But man, it was a it was an incredible project, and and we definitely learned a lot through it.
0: One of the videos I watched where you and Aaron are talking about the book is is you guys mentioned man Spurgeon. Spurgeon's someone, and again I'm, I'm sitting here in the Spurgeon Library where we've committed thousands of square feet to just his library, let let alone let alone his life, and man, most of the the you know, young seminarians and college students around here, we lionized Charles Spurgeon and for really good reasons, but we, we kind of get the high points, but you guys in the book talk a lot about just Spurgeon's struggle with depression and some of the physical ailments he had. And, and that's going to tie into the conversation we're going to have at the back part of this podcast. But I mean, you guys, um, showed the whole Spurgeon talk about what you learned in that process.
1: Well, you're right. I mean, he, you know, if you, if you took a poll of of 1,000 seminary students, I bet there's a, a decent percentage of them that would say Spurgeon is their hero. I mean, sure. arguably one of the greatest preachers in ever breed there on the planet. What he accomplished was unbelievable. Just his view of slavery obviously was ahead of its time. And so we look at him and think, man, <clears throat> this guy was perfect. I mean, he we've all quoted him in our sermons and studied him and written papers in seminary about him and on and on. But man, you know. It, you, you, you've you've had heroes before that you get around, that you sort of sure. look at them and idolize them, and then when you meet them, you realize, man, these guys are just dudes. <laughs> you know, That's they're right. just human beings, just like you are and I am. And, mm. and the same thing happened with Spurgeon. As we we took a deep dive into this guy's life, again, we're writing from his perspective, and so we wanted to get to know. I mean, how did this guy think? What were his mm. fears? What were his dreams? What what were his hangups? What were his sins? And and um, and man, what we realized is, is exactly what I said. This guy was just a dude. I mean, he was a yeah. guy. He was a man, just like everybody else. Mm. <clears throat> he just had a unique anointing on his life. He was brilliant. I mean, he was next yeah. level genius. But he was just a guy. And so, yeah, man, we he struggled deeply with uh, depression throughout his entire ministry. He struggled with insecurity. Um, mm. <clears throat> at the end of at the end of his career, um, Metropolitan Tabernacle started declining you know, mm. at the very end. And there was a young preacher in town that his church was growing and, and man, he struggled with that. And he had, uh, major health issues that just plagued him the last about 15 years of his life, crippling, um, you know, bouts of gout where he just couldn't even preach.
0: Mm.
1: And so in, in, in an odd way, man, it's comforting to know that somebody that's that anointed, somebody that's that gifted, somebody that obviously has the hand of the Lord on him struggle, just like you and I do mm. struggle with sin, struggle with pride, struggle with hurts and, and all that stuff. And so I've heard story after story from pastor that have read the book that just said, man, it was so helpful to me just to know that somebody that's that loved that beloved and, and that looked up to uh, struggle with the same stuff I do.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, so often, man, as I've taught leadership or just been around other individuals, I find like so many people see leadership as something outside of their ability to do, you know, because so many of the people that they put in that category, whether it's Spurgeon or John Piper or Matt Carter or Jason Allen or whoever it is, they just think, man, these guys are flawless uh, and and they're doing something that's categorically different than anything I could ever do. They never struggle with these things. They never, uh, you know, struggle with doubt or insecurity or depression or those sort of things. And so I think to to shed light on that stuff is not to um, in any way impugn their character. It's really just to to make more accessible. I I, th- I think it it highlights grace, man. Because you get you're getting to see, man. Actually, the Lord was carrying these individuals. It wasn't just, man, they're born with these incredible gifts, and of course they are, but it's also that they they were walking lockstep with the Holy Spirit and, and trusting on the Lord and their weakness. And so I think when you bring some of those things to light, it makes leadership a little bit more accessible and doable. And yeah, like he was insecure too.
1: There's no question. And I think that, um, you know, you think about think about these guys that that sort of looked up to him and, and, you know, when I say guys, I'm talking about pastors and today that just look up to him. And, and again, it's just oddly comforting that no matter what this guy was able to do, he had to depend on the Holy spirit too. And yeah, he has a gifting that none of us have, but, um, and, and, and one of the things that's, that's been encouraging and helpful for people, especially uh, Charles from millennials Is one of the things that I've seen that's currency for the millennials, millennial generation, is they love transparency. Yeah. And and it's it's currency for them. They don't want to see that I have it all together. Yeah. And they don't they don't want to hear that I'm just not struggling with anything and conquering everything and doing everything perfectly. What really ministers to that generation is that man, I struggle with all the same stuff you do. And here's how I'm I'm having victory in it through the Holy Spirit. And so to be able to go back in time 150 years and see that one of the greatest heroes of our faith and the history of our faith was doing the same thing is incredibly encouraging.
0: Yeah. 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 It's, it's, uh, man, that concept of transparency and vulnerability and leadership is something that man, that seems to be a generational thing. I think it's a biblical thing, but if you just think in, in secular terms, Man, for the longest time, the, the the model of leadership is general patent. Man, you show yep. strength. You don't show weakness. And I think you're right. I, I lead a team of almost exclusively millennials and younger. And man, they smell that like this. That's exactly like it, it, right. it is so clear to them that they know you're broken long before you do. They That's know right. what your weaknesses are long before you do. And the longer you hide them, uh, it, it just, it gets worse for you. And so, man, I've experienced, not only does it build trust and a connection with them, I think it back to the point of accessibility of leadership, I think it helps them see just like you're saying, man, Matt Carter gets nervous before he preaches sometimes too, and and Charles Not does sometimes, that. Jason, <laughs> that, that's right. And uh, man, I just think when you tell people that, it, it you know, I, I don't think you lose any credibility. I think you just gain a hearing with a lot of those folks, and it makes the step towards leadership that much shorter, that much attainable, much more attainable. And um, so, man, I I love that you guys were gleaning some of those insights from Spurgeon. Hey, I want to get to your article, the article you wrote over at For the Church. And, uh, man, this article was really popular, and so one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it today. But if you're listening, you've probably heard of John Maxwell's book, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. This book has sold, uh, I believe, over 2 million copies uh, at least as of 2010 or so. So just about every person you know has got a copy of this in their home library. And the first law is what he calls the law of the lid. So Matt, talk about the law of the lid and, and why you wrote this article.
1: Yeah. So I, I wrote the article and I think it was Jared Wilson asked me to write it. And he just said, man, write on anything you want, you know, but but focus on leadership. And, um, and I thought about this topic because I, I bought that book. Gosh, I I'm going blank on when it went out, maybe '98 or 98. something like that. Yeah. And I was a, I was a young youth pastor, and I was trying to get my brain around what it looked like to be a leader, you know, in the church. And so I bought that book, and it's called the, the 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And so the idea is there's 21 laws out there that you cannot refute um, when it comes to leadership. Mm. And, um, and basically the the title of my article is Refuting the Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And because I, for lack of better words, refuted one of them <clears throat> at the Austin Stone <laughs> and the first law of the lid, the first law, the irrefutable law is called the law of the lid. And so the idea behind the law of the lid is that, you know, whatever level you are as a leader, that is the <clears throat> that's the cap. That's the lid that your organization is going to be able to grow to. And so, you know, if on a, on a scale of one to 10, if you're a six leader, then your organization going to be able to grow to a six. <clears throat> you know, if you're a two, then. Then, then you're only going to be able to grow to a two. And as a young guy getting in the ministry, that was incredibly um, depressing for me because, mm. man, I can preach and <clears throat> there's some things I can do, but I'm not the greatest leader in the world. You know, mm. um, I wrote an article, my name's Matt Carter, not Matt Chandler, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and so I'm, I, I am not the greatest leader in the world. And so I thought, man, I'm, I'm sort of destined to, uh, to mediocre leadership and, and to leading a mediocre organization. And, and so over the years of the last 18 years at the Austin stone, um, man, my, for lack of better words, man, my church, my organization, if you will, has far exceeded my personal ability to lead.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and so that article was really writing about sort of how I refuted the irrefutable law to lead.
0: Tell some of the story. So I think most folks listening know what the Austin Stone is, and I'm not inviting you to brag, but I mean, you, you you were the founding pastor of the church and over the last 20 years, it's been about 20 years, right?
1: Um, Yeah. We're celebrating 18 years this year.
0: I mean, you you guys are, I I may not get all this right, but one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing churches in in North America and the Southern Baptist convention, you've sent as many or more missionaries than just about any church in the country. Um, Man, you look at your lineup of leaders that you guys have attracted. Uh, it's just incredible what's going on in Austin, Texas. Uh, it, just your music ministry alone, man, is influenced. And we've had uh, you guys lead at the For the Church Conference several times. But like in any different category you look or every different category you look, man, you guys seem to be just doing a lot and and leading in a lot of different spheres. And yet you're sitting here saying, man, I'm actually— that's not my core gift of leadership, which does seem to say, uh, from using Maxwell's terms, you're saying you're a five of leadership and I'm saying your organization is a 12 and that seems to stand in disagreement with the law That's of the right. lid. So like w- what, what happened? Like how did it th- tell some of that story?
1: Yeah. So there's, and, and dude, I really just stumbled into this. I mean, you know, i I wish I could tell you that I had some brilliant thought or moment where I laid all this out, and <clears throat> I did, and I sort of stumbled into it just by the grace of God. But there's kind of three primary things that I did to, uh, for just lack of better words, refute the irrefutable law of the lid. And, and the first one is, man, I lead in plurality. <clears throat> um, you know, there's there's two sort of um, philosophies of how to approach your weaknesses, you know, you discover your weaknesses and you just focus on them and you get better at them and you strive and work. And that's where you put all your effort, and your time, or you find the areas that you're weak and you hire really good people that are mm-hmm. good at those areas. You're weak and you let them run. <clears throat> and that's sort of my number one thing I'm looking for when I'm, when I'm hiring a senior team and when I'm getting my, my team around me, i I look for three things. I look for, I look for actual godly character, um, you know, and I, and you're like, of course, but no, I'm, I'm talking about people that walk with Jesus. One mm. of the questions that I, <clears throat> that I always ask people in interviews that are, that I'm interviewing for a senior team is I'm like, when's the last time that the gospel brought you to tears? Mm. I ask them that. Cause I want to know when's the last time the thought of the cross and the resurrection brought them, move their heart, you know, and yeah. if they can't answer that, I won't hire them because I, I want to go in the, get in the fight with people that, that are emotionally moved by the person of Jesus and the gospel. And I, I I look for people that are teachable. I've hired people before that were incredibly talented, but weren't teachable and they don't grow. Mm. And I look for intelligence, man. I know that's, I mean, I I do, I want to know if if guys can, you know, have the, have the sort of chops to be able to be self-starters and may not have to look over their shoulder. And, and so I I find people that have those three characteristics and I put them in the right position and I let them run. Mm. And so, so obviously, they're they're being strong and they're they're succeeding in places that I would naturally be weak. But the other thing that I found men is that um, is that they they'll help me grow as a leader. And mm-hmm. and which brings me to the second thing I do. So I lead in plurality, <clears throat> hire people that are really, really good in the areas mm-hmm. I'm weak and I let them lead. Um, you, by the way, I'll say this, man, you can't keep good leaders if you constantly micromanage them. You just can't. You won't. If 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 you want if you want to get a level leaders, you gotta let them lead. And so that's that's what that plurality means. But the second thing is this: is you, you gotta have real accountability in your life. <clears throat> and um, I think one of the ways, one of the primary ways that we stunt our growth as leaders is we don't have people in our lives that can challenge us um, in our weaknesses. And we don't like being challenged. We don't like being aware of the things that we struggle in. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things that I do is I, I hire those those good leaders and then I invite them into my life and invite them into my leadership. And 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 you, you want to do two things, Charles, you want to give you want to have those men in your life that have proximity mm-hmm. and have permission
0: mm-hmm.
1: in your life. And here's what, what I mean. You know, I've had friends that <clears throat> were pastors that that had men in their life that could speak into their life, but they weren't close to them. You know, it was like they'd be a pastor in some city and they'd have four or five pastors around the country that could supposedly speak in their life. But they didn't have that proximity. And so there there are things going on in their life that people didn't know about. And they stunted their sort of leadership growth and their godly character and that sort of thing. You need to have men that actually are close to you. They're in proximity with you, um, that can see the way that you lead on a daily basis. And so not only do they have proximity, but they have permission. You give them permission to challenge you. You give them permission to speak to you as a peer you give them permission to call you out on the things that you're weak, man, there are several times over the years. And I, when I say several, I mean several times over the years where I would do something in a meeting or I'd respond in a certain way to a team member, or I would make a decision. And <clears throat> Kevin Peck, you know, our lead pastor or all Sub, our pastor of theology that I'm really tight with that these guys I have that have permission will pull me aside and go, man, you can't do that. You know, when mm-hmm. you did that, this is how it made people feel or, you know they did it very kindly and respectfully, sure. but what it did is I'm like, man, you're right, and I changed because yeah. and, and 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 so that's the you got to have permission and proximity people to to call you out on your stuff. So you'll actually grow as a leader.
0: Hey, did you feel like you had to invite that with those two individuals or or with anybody? I mean, a lot of times. That's not a, I mean, with a guy like Kevin Pack, he's unique. And and I imagine even if you didn't invite him to give feedback, he'd give you feedback. Uh, he'd do that kindly and humbly and, and all that. But man, as, as a leader, as one of the senior guys there, or these senior guys, especially early on, are you inviting people to do that? Are you making that clear? Hey, I, I want you to be in proximity. And are you, h- how are you giving them permission?
1: I, I, actually, I absolutely invited him. And I mean, even though, for people that don't know kevin peck he's our lead pastor of the stone he's one of the he is one of the top leaders in the country i mean he's brilliant and he's amazing but you know you're still the sort of the lead voice you know at the church and especially in the beginning and and i don't know if he would have or not I, and so that's definitely something we fought for together and and i mean i just told him and and um and so one you ask him but then two you know there are times throughout you know we'll have meetings we'll do things and you and you ask him, hey man what could I have done differently? You know, were there things that, that I did in this meeting or in this retreat or this week or whatever, and you ask them those questions and give them permission to speak into it. And then you got to be real careful how you respond. You got to listen and just take it, you know, and say, yeah. thank you. And, yeah. um, cause a lot of guys just refuse to do that. Or if people do speak into their life, they flip out and get mad and shut it down. Mm. And so, yeah, I think you got to ask for it and, um, you, you got to expect it and then you got to respond well when it happens. <laughs>
0: You know, I, I I'd love to ask, you know, early on at the stone, when it's just kind of you and and a bunch of people in your living room and you're you're starting to you hire your first staff members, I imagine it was easier to have your hands on everything. and, and probably, from a heart perspective easier to want to have your hands on everything it seems like organizations whether it's a seminary or a church you come to a threshold where if you don't release control you'll never i think that's the lid and i think i think that is the real leadership lid like you're not going to lead beyond yourself and you have to come to this point of decision where either you choose control, or you can you choose kind of growth. And hey, we're we're gonna have influence with more people, and I'm gonna let more people make decisions and and join the team. What did that threshold look like for you at the Stone? Was that hard to kind of make that step into giving away more authority and decision making and all that? Yeah, I mean, they're
1: you know, I mean, you talk about the different growth barriers of a church: two hundred fifty, five hundred, thousand, two thousand, all that, and. I th- you know there there will come a time where it ought to hit you as a leader. look man i'm I'm swimming against the current here in these particular areas of my organization and and that's where guys bogged down yeah. because um, I mean, let's just take one. I mean it, it wasn't very long into the the church where it hit me really quickly that I am in over my head when it comes to finances. Mm. Um, and and so I, I'm like, okay, i'm gonna I'm gonna find a guy that does this, that does it well, that does it in his sleep. And, and, and people say all the time, I want to hire good people and let them run, but the letting them run parts, the the hard part, because you got to let them make decisions that you may not agree with, Mm. you know, and, um, but if you're hiring really good people that you love and trust, um, as the senior guy, sometimes you need to submit and let them do that. Maybe they make a mistake and you learn from it and you move on. But if you, you hire some guy that's, that's great, but every single time he tries to make a decision you disagree with, you're shutting it down, then, then you're not letting him lead. And so, um, man, there were several times throughout the years that I sort of, I became aware of like, man, I have got to let this go. I've got to find somebody to do it and I've got to trust them to be able to make those decisions. And man, it's worked. I mean, we've kept high quality leaders for years and it's, and it's not that they don't report to me. It's not that, that I'm not involved. It's just that I actually let them do their job.
0: So man, you, you've been walking through how you know looking back what are some ways that you've refuted the 21 laws of or i guess the first law the law of the lid and you've mentioned leading in plurality you've mentioned having real accountability to to have proximity and give people permission to speak into your life and to correct you and then and then take it on the chin when they when they do offer it what what are some other things we got to be thinking about
1: yeah i, I was thinking about it i think the last one man as i, I as i wrote that article the, the last one i sort of came up with is so yeah, so you lead lead in plurality. You want to have um, real accountability, actual accountability in your life. And then lastly, I think it's really important to surround yourself with young leaders. Um, mm-hmm. And I was recently talking to a church that their pastor had been there forever and and had stayed probably 10 years longer than um, than he should have. And 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 his staff aged with him. He was the founding pastor of the church and the. And the staff aged with him, and they, they, they wake up one day, and they're all in their late 60s, early 70s, and they're, and they're scratching their heads wondering why young people aren't coming to their church. And, you know, I read somewhere that your, your most effective um, range of leadership is people that are 15 years older than you and 15 years younger than you. And, and what I found when I, when I bring younger guys around me is, especially in a culture that is changing as rapidly as it does – You've got to have people that speak the language of the younger generation. I mean, I don't mean this in in any disrespectful way at all because I think millennials are unbelievable and I think they're going to change the world. But they speak a radically different language than my generation. What motivates them, what drives them, the way they view the world is radically different. If you don't have millennial leaders, they're sitting at your table with you, you know that are at the big, the big boy table, you know, Sure. then you're going to make decisions that are not going to be most effective to impact them. And so it's huge to have guys that are 10, 15 years younger than you that, you know, you're being smart, but that you're allowing them at the, at the table of leadership and having a voice to be able to craft your worship services uh, and your culture in a way that's going to reach the next generation.
0: Yeah, 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 no question. Yeah, one of the things I'm noticing constantly is um, the millennial generation, everybody loves to hate on them, but at the same time, man, they are so hungry to just get in the game, and I don't think – I don't think most current leaders that are leading in significant ways of, uh, you know, churches and organizations, I don't think they fully caught onto that yet. That, that sometimes the cynicism of the millennial generation is really just a disguise for the fact that they are dying to get in the game. They're dying to be involved. They're dying to be mentored by you. Uh, but oftentimes, and I talked about this with Kevin Zell on the podcast the other day, they're unwilling to ask, and this isn't uni- unique to millennials, 50-year-old men and women are unwilling to ask other people to disciple them and mentor them and speak into their lives. But if you just start with the assumption, man, they are chomping on the bit to get on the field, and just ask them. It's amazing how quick they are to, to lean into it. When you look at studies of why millennials um, stay at organizations, I, I looked at this just a couple of years ago. Man, money is like just barely in the top ten. Yeah. It's not it's not even a main concern. It's really a desire to grow, to have influence, to make an impact, uh, to be invested in, you know, those sorts of things. So it's so easy for leaders to do this, but you got to be intentional to do it. And I I think one of the things you've said that's really helpful is you got to be willing to let them make mistakes like they, they may help and they may get on the field, but they don't really learn until you let them blow something up a little bit.
1: Well, man, let's let's step back just a second and let's talk about these, <clears throat> the desire of millennials to sort of get in the fight, so to speak. Yeah. And I mean, you read it in an article. I heard the same thing from one of my millennial staff that's, that has proximity to me.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: and <clears throat> he studies them at length. His name's Tyler David. He's a great young preacher and leader, and and um, he's he's in his early thirties. And he's like Matt. Millennials are wired in such a way that you know they honestly don't care about the big house and the big car and the big four one k. Maybe the way that that boomers did. And he said, man, it's all about experience for them. It's all about living life. You know, if, 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 if you and I as Gen Xers had a couple of hundred bucks laying around, we may put it in the bank, you know, or put it in the retirement program. They're, they're sure. getting a ticket to Europe and going and spending That's four right. days backpacking. That's right. Yeah. And so what that did is it made us go, okay, you know, we've got a church full of those people. How are we going to get them on mission? And yeah. that was really the impetus for our for the our, our hundred people network that we call it, which is you mentioned earlier in the podcast that, you know, we have just tons of, of missionaries from the Austin Stone. man. I think right now in the field, we have around 220 um, mm-hmm. full time missionaries going for two years to specifically unreached people groups all over the world. Yeah. And um, man, primarily the, the folks that are doing that are, are the age between about 22 and 32. Wow. And, 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 and it was me understanding, Hey, these guys, the, they want to get in the fight. They want to get in the game. They, yeah. they don't want to sit in the pew and change diapers for 30 years and hand you checks and listen to you preach and yeah. and all that stuff's important. I'm not demeaning that at all, but they want to, they want to know how can I use the gift that God gave me to change the world, to make a dent in the great commission. Yeah. And so, man, <clears throat> we had a guy walk up to us, young guy. He said, man, he said, I got a dream. I got an idea. I was like, okay, shoot, shoot. He's like, what if we sent a hundred people from the Austin stone to unreached people groups all over the world? This was about 10 years ago. <clears throat> and I, and, and in my mind, I thought that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life, you know, cause <laughs> you know, I grew up in a church. I was there 18 years and we sent one missionary, you know, to like Mexico or something. Sure. And, and so I was like, but I said, man, that's great. That's awesome. I love that. You guys create the infrastructure and I'll preach on it. Yeah. And so about a year later, I preached a series, it's been like 2010, 2011, I preached a series on going to the nations. Mm. And, you know, this is, our church time is just completely full of college kids. And at the end of the night, we had an informational meeting, just about going to the nations if you're interested. And we had 517 people come to that informational meeting that night alone. And I just would. shows you the pent-up desire of that generation to get in the game. and mm. And so, man, I, again, going back to this law of the lid thing, you got to have people in your life and have people in your team that are thinking the way that that generation is thinking in order to help you reach them and get them on mission.
0: Man, our time's coming to a close, but i want to I want to remind us of what we've heard Matt just say here because, <laughs> You know, even if you haven't read this book, I guarantee you a lot of your life is driven by unwittingly a law of the lid, and, and you think, man, my my organization, maybe my family, wherever you're leading, can't surpass my ability to lead it. And and there is some truth to that, right? And, and that's where this can get slippery. But what we see in Scripture and what we just heard from Matt is, no, actually, it can. And and Christ is magnified in our our, our weakness. Uh, people are brought near in our transparency. Uh, people are equipped in our ability to release them and allow them to lead. And so Matt's told us that that he's seen those things happen by leading in plurality, uh, that he's had real accountability, that he's had proximity with people in our life, and he's given them explicit permission to speak into his life. And then finally, he's encouraged us to surround ourselves with and develop young leaders. So Matt, man, this has been a blast to talk to you. And uh, as always, man, respect you so much, praying for you and your ministry. I appreciate you coming on the Leadership Project.
1: Man, it's a, it's been an honor to be with you. Thank you so much, Charles.
0: I appreciate it. All right, brother. God bless. You too.